Hello, everybody, and welcome to Ideology. Mick Murray here with Drew Stedman. You know, before we dive in, I, I just want to pause. I just came from a funeral here in Waco and uh, say a friend. I, I wasn't personally as close with them, but I know a lot of our listeners uh, uh, here in Waco and, and around the nation were close with Jonathan Martin, and he was a longtime listener of the show. If you can count the last two years, as a long time. But uh, I know that uh, the show had impacted him, and he's impacted so many lives. And, you know, I, I really... Um, it's hard to say you enjoy funerals, but I, uh, funerals are always, of course, very moving, but it's also just such a, a reminder of, it, it frames everything. Funerals put everything back in perspective and celebrating, you know, the life of a loved one, a friend. And, and, um, this one was no different and, you know, it's so moving and, you know, as, as we're going to talk about the acts of God, talking about revival throughout history, uh, today, you know, these aren't just abstract concepts, but um, these are these are realities that shape our lives and and the the reality of God and the 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 body of Christ and and just seeing just that human pathos on display again today was so moving. And so, for the friends and family of Jonathan Martin, uh, just want to uh, honor you guys and and honor his life. For those of you who don't know him, just uh, to, hopefully today's a you know a time to reflect on that which is truly important and meaningful. Uh, in life. So we are going to pick back up on the acts of God, you know, these first couple of episodes for Ideology Season 3. We've talked about a theology of God uh, first week. Last week, we talked about does God act in the world? And we're going to extend that theme today, talking about the action of God uh, in the form of revival. Going back to the first week, we looked at some different viewpoints of how we might understand God. God as both transcendent, that he is beyond time and space. He is beyond full knowability, but he's also imminent. He is present. He has made himself available to us. To us, He has revealed various aspects of his nature to us. And, and as people, we, are, we have to hold those two realities in tension, that God is both transcendent and imminent. He's entirely beyond the limitations of this physical world, beyond our understanding, and yet he is present in the world, and and how we reconcile these two truths over you know the past couple thousand years has led to a variety of perspectives. Some that are mutually exclusive, some that overlap, but perspectives have emerged, especially recently, that challenge the historic teaching of the church. And so we're trying to lay out here these first few episodes a a, a balance of those perspectives call us, call our listeners to evaluate how we understand God, how we understand his actions in the world. And today we're going to turn that to revival. So I'm going to kick it over to you, Drew. Uh, Why don't you uh, take us into God's action in the world when it comes to revival? Yes. Thanks, Mick. And, uh, you know, great overview. And I was thinking about this concept, how it can be so abstract. But today I want to turn the corner and say, you know, if God does act in the world, what does that mean for us? And maybe a different level of a question is how do we discern the acts of God? And I think this is actually maybe at the heart of some people's reluctance to identify God's action or declare that God continues to act in the world. And I'm not just talking about in a charismatic sense, but we're worried. We're worried that once we start attributing acts of God to specific events, you know, that's where things can get complex. And even pastorally, I'm aware of that, you know, of how do I discern when God is acting or what does it even mean to say that God is acting? A few ways that, that this conversation can pop up as far as the, where does this intersect my life? One is scripture. 
And, you know, what does it mean when we say God acts in scripture? And we referenced some of that the last few weeks. Um, I I think if you are paying attention the last couple of weeks, you're going to see very quickly how important this is um, because so much of of the Bible describes the acts of God. That's not what we're going today, though, is um, just purely a defense of, of the acts of God as attributed in scripture. We're assuming that. But there's other ways I believe we can discern God's acts. So there's the personal side of this. And that's the realm of testimony. What are the places in which God has acted in my life or a person's life? And that could be everything from the dramatic to the inner witness of the Holy Spirit, you know, could qualify as God acting, leading us, divine providence, you know, things like this. Third category would be specific miracles or signs and wonders, you know, where uh, even in my own family, you know, there's miracle stories that are medically documented. And I know many others out there. Things of that nature where you can say, as best we can tell, there's not an explanation for this event apart from God coming and doing something. Or, or maybe if there is a natural explanation, it, it seems like it would be fairly remote um, apart from God coming and doing something. However, the fourth category is where I want to key in today. And this is, is a broader historical view of how God has led the church in history. And I would say all four of these categories are are worth exploring, and there's probably more out there of, of discerning the acts of God. But in looking at the broad overview of the church and then the history of God working through the church, I, I think a great way to test the last couple of weeks is if God is indeed an agent, and if God acts in the world, then I think it's a reasonable conclusion to say we should therefore see examples of God's action in the world. And we should expect that to be at an individual level, but we should also expect it to be at a broader level that can be discerned, you know, beyond maybe just me sharing my personal testimony. So, and let me flip it. If I was a critic, you know, and I was challenging the things that I've shared, I think that's the route I would go. As I would say, that all sounds great, but is there actually any evidence of that? If God really acts in the world, uh, are you able to, to demonstrate to me over the course of time and in history, repeated examples of God's action. Before we dive in a bit more, I do want to give a disclaimer that what we're sharing today is not an apologetic. So I'm not trying to offer an ironclad proof of what is or is not an act of God. Um, I think there's a place for, for that work, and I'm really grateful for friends who engage in that. The downside of, of trying to offer a proof is that whatever proof I would be able to offer is going to be based upon a person's starting belief system. And what I mean by that is if there is somebody that's committed to naturalism and naturalism is the belief, as we've explained before, that what we see in nature is all that can be known. And it's this this thought that every event that occurs has a natural cause to it. And so, you know, for a person who's committed to that, then anytime they hear a story, they are going to reject outright factors that would not be attributed to a natural cause. So, you know, they might hear a a healing story and they're they're going to immediately dismiss that as a possibility and they'll move on to say, uh, you know, the body's mysterious or sometimes they'll have their own category of mystery of, you know, we don't understand how these things work, but you know, surely there's a scientific reason for this and we just haven't discovered it yet. And so, you know, if you're, if you're committed to naturalism, then the proofs that you require for anybody to, to, to say this is a, an act of God, the proofs that you require are actually proofs of naturalism. Like it's almost impossible to 
prove that an act of God is indeed an act of God if your starting point starts with the assumption that there is no such thing. And, you know, I know that that's all circular, but that's the problem is it is all circular. And the same notion, if you are open to God acting, I can look at the same event and I can more easily attribute it to an act of God. Now, you know, maybe there's an event that I think is an act of God, that it is natural. And, you know, I mean, it gets really complicated. So the point of me saying this is not proving to skeptics that this is an act of God because the laws of naturalism, there's no way to, you know, defend it or something like that. And this is a proof to skeptics. That's not really where I'm going with this. Instead, what I'm saying is if you are open to acts of God, then the stories that we share, I, I believe, provide a lot of support to the fact that God has indeed acted. Somebody could come along and, you know, you could develop a theory for how these all happen based on purely sociological factors. And and that could be your belief. And, and you know, that that's fine. But I think of the same token, if you're somebody who's committed to this awareness that there is a God who acts, I think you could look at these events and see the evidence of God uh, moving in the world. And a lot of that's going to come down to what is your starting assumption? Yeah, I think the other side of that coin is that Christianity and, and all faith systems come under fire for this assumption by people who would follow more of a naturalistic or materialistic train of thought or worldview that Christianity is a completely unfounded, irrational set of beliefs. And and I think part of the joy of studying the history is that Christianity in particular is a very rational set of beliefs. Yes, it is predicated on the divine, it's predicated on the metaphysical, but the historicity of the faith has been scrutinized for thousands of years and has stood up to some of the most withering scrutiny in the academy. And it's actually served to bolster my faith as I have wrestled and dug into the apologetic, the uh, the reasons for faith. It, uh, I have been surprised to find that there is actually a tremendous amount of work that has been done by very uh, well-meaning people all over the world to undergird the faith. And, and like you said, Drew, there's no... You know, apologetics is, has its place. It's useful in certain contexts. Um, certainly, God still has to move in a person's heart and open their eyes and give the, impart the gift of faith, I believe. And and yet, uh, we don't, as believers, we don't have to sh- to shy away from hard questions. We don't have to live with this kind of second-class intellectualism. The, the Christian faith is actually predicated on very consistent and coherent beliefs and rational beliefs that are backed up by a lot of historical evidence, nothing that is you know, a proof, but certainly that is supportive uh, and not contradictory to the point of dismantling the faith. But, you know, it's two sides of that same coin that it's, it's not a proof in and of itself, but the apologetic of looking at God acting in history is a tremendous support to efforts to undergird the faith. Yeah, that's great, Mick. And you know, maybe the argument that um, I'm making today you could label as coherentism, you know, where I'm, what I'm trying to demonstrate is that what we observe in history is coherent with the faith that we profess. You know, is it a proof? And that's where we're kind of getting into what are the limits of what can be or cannot be proven. But is it coherent? I believe the answer is resoundingly yes. And so if this episode had a thesis that I'd want to present, it would be, I believe that we can demonstrate that what we see in history is what we would expect to see if God is indeed an active agent in the world. So the history of the church bears witness to the acts of God. 
And that's, as I study different revival stories in history, that's my, my conclusion time and again. So let's look at a couple different places that I think support this. And we can start with the rise of the church. So last season, we did a, a series on church history. We walked through different time periods in the church. Um, I'm not wanting to um, rehash that all. And, and we've talked about the rise of the church and even hit um, some of the factors before um, previous episodes. So for our purposes today, I want to start by saying that it's hard to reconcile the growth of the church with any sociological theory. And it's one of those events in history that happened, but it shouldn't have happened. And so, you know, there's a lot of of work, uh, both Christian and secular work, trying to explain how or why it happened. But we have to take a step back and say that it shouldn't. It's an event that should not have occurred. Uh, And, you know, the church later became powerful in Europe, but for the first several hundred years had no military nor political power, really much wealth at all or anything like that, until after it was already well established. And as best I can tell, this is unique in religious history. Uh, Another factor in the church that maybe gets a little less attention, but I think is also incredibly significant, is that the church was multicultural from the very beginning. And in in the face of all of that, the church also had sustained attempts to destroy it. And some of that was in active persecution where leaders were systematically killed, holy books burned, things of that nature. But then it also had this kind of corroding persecution where it wasn't, and this is, this is the norm for the first couple of years, a couple hundred years, was uh, just on a local level experiencing pressure, loss of social status, loss of future income. You know, maybe you weren't getting thrown to the gladiators, but you were still um, suffering consequences for your faith. And th- that's the environment that the church grew up within. And they didn't really have any powerful patron to support them, at least from a, a human standpoint. And it forces people to ask the question, why did the church grow in so many different places? It grew in Israel, it grew in Asia Minor, um, so modern day Turkey, and then across the Aegean Sea and places like Greece. It grew in Rome, it grew in Persia, it grew in these missionary outposts, both in like West and Spain and eventually into England, but also East all the way out of, you know, within a couple hundred years into China. And so why were so many people from so many cultural backgrounds willing to die for their faith without the possibility of some subsequent gain in any kind of political, military, or other forms of power. And I don't know that there's any one example, if you're, if you're looking for purely natural causes, that makes sense of all of that. Now, there's a lot of theories out there, and I read a lot of them, you know, and um, it could be things of how the church treated women, and I'm sure that that definitely applied and was a, a reason why people were drawn to it. Um, a shift to urbanization and um, a bit more exposure to other cultural backgrounds, maybe open people up to new ideas. And I'm I'm sure once again, that, you know, that the timing of God contributed to that, the decline of paganism. And I've seen theories out there that, you know, paganism, especially in the Roman sense, just wasn't that good of a religion. And so, you know, Christianity got lucky, so to speak, because it just happened to emerge at the right time. And you can keep going. And if you are committed, if you are committed to naturalism, um, kind of this secular naturalist perspective, what you'll probably do is start with an assumption that it was one of those things, or try to come up with some new theory. And I'm, I'm, there's a lot of PhD theses out there that that relate back to this. I've even seen some Christians will take this on, but from a slightly different angle. And what they'll do is they'll start by saying that the rise of the church has natural explanations, but God worked through those natural events. 
This would be looking at divine sovereignty or divine providence in establishing the church, you know, maybe at just the right time or using the right sociological factors. And this is why the church took off. But I, I want to change the whole argument and say, I don't think there is a compelling naturalistic reason for why the church grew. And I'm not saying that those naturalistic reasons didn't contribute to the growth of the church. But if we start with the premise that the growth of the church was an act of God, where God was actively working in the world to establish his church, I believe that actually makes much better sense of what we experience in history. And so Jesus initiated this action through his incarnation, ministry, death, burial, and resurrection. The Spirit ignited the church at Pentecost and caused it to spread through his direct power and leadership. And and I would imagine, based on what we see even in modern revival stories, that a significant percentage of the people that joined the church became Christian because they experienced the acts of God in some way. That could be a healing, that could be a deliverance, you know, whatever that might be, or they were a family member or, you know, maybe even a, a neighbor of somebody who experienced that. So another way of saying all this is something happened to these people that caused them to do things that don't make sense otherwise. Something happened where they had an encounter with God that overcame all of the different sociological and political barriers that would have prevented the church from spreading and from being established in the first place. And when I look at it, I have yet to see any naturalistic theory that I think is even remotely compelling. Some of what you see is actually the opposite. If you take, um, there's a a very famous sociologist of religion, uh, Emile Durkheim, who's a French sociologist that I've referenced him before. And, and, you know, he covers a lot of different areas, but one of them is the rise of religion. And he has this famous proposal that religion is the self-transcendence of a community or a culture. And what he means by that is that what religions do is they take the embedded values of a culture and they elevate it. And so it's, it's a human creation, but it's beyond any one person. And it's this embodiment of what that culture wants to be elevated in the form of a religion. And what religion does is it inculcates these values in new generations of people. And that idea is, you know, developed and, and still held to in a lot of places. Um, we see some of it, you know, some of the theories of social constructionism, which we've also talked about, hit this as well, where we are constructing these universes of, of what it means to be human and what the world is and what reality is and what is truth and all of that. These are these socially constructed things that people create and, um, and religion is a critical part of that. And, you know, so that's that's a dominant theory of religion. So you take that and trying to square that away with a church that grew in the midst of poverty and from its very inception grew cross-culturally undercuts that theory entirely. And so why, you know, you can maybe make sense of a religion that started in Rome, why it would be so powerful or a religion that really started in any one location. And that's what we see a lot of when we look at other forms of religious growth in history. But why would the Christian church spread so rapidly in such a variety of different places? And, you know, if you think of Persia is the enemy of the Roman Empire, but you had the church established there and in Israel, which was destroyed by the Roman Empire and in Greece, which was a part of the Roman Empire, but also had, you know, some some pretty significant cultural distance. And then also in Rome, which was the very seat of power. So if there's this sociological reason for why a religion is established, the growth of the Christian church would suggest something very different. Uh, Why would it grow this way? 
what was it about it? And, you know, and then you take some of the other arguments, like, is it really enough where people are going to allow themselves to be fed to a lion because they treat women better? You know, is that, is that really going to cause the church to grow? Would a pagan be willing to convert to Christianity and suffer a lot of different consequences purely because they were dissatisfied with paganism? Like none of that really makes sense. You know, these theories, they, they just don't square with the reality of what actually happened. And so the reason why we have all these theories is because people tend to preclude divine action from ever occurring in the first place. But once you open that door and you open the possibility of understanding the world, not just as far as what we would consider to be natural events that occur, but also divine acts that occur, then all of a sudden you look at the growth of the church and it makes a ton of sense because you have God who, based on his own will, sought to establish a people unto himself and he empowered them to grow and spread across the earth, which coincidentally is exactly what he said he was going to do. That, that becomes a very coherent story that explains what we observe in history. So is that a proof? Maybe not. But is it compelling and is it coherent? I believe the answer is absolutely yes. Yeah, it's great, Drew. And, you know, I was, uh, as you're talking, I was thinking back to a logic class that I taught at a, a local school here in Waco. And we talked about the, the correspondence theory of truth and, you know, that which corresponds to reality most closely is most likely true. And uh, and I, I love just, you know, laying out the historical trajectory of the church does seem to correspond to this divine action, that there aren't many uh, reasonable explanations for the growth of the church, the explosive growth of the church in the in the first three centuries, and, and even going all the way back to the you know the, the the disciples of Jesus, they had nothing to gain and everything to lose from this uh, public profession of their faith, having just seen their rabbi murdered, uh, you know, by the Romans and the Jews, and uh, and the, these dramatic transformations. I just think it's so compelling, and there's a lot of great literature out there. Uh, in that regard. So, so if that's, you know, if that's kind of ancient history, Drew, what do you see throughout history, even into the modern age in this regard? Great question, Mick, because yes, that, that could be definitely a critique of what I'm saying is, you know, the further back in history you go, history is always subject to revision. And, you know, we don't have access to those early believers. I can't sit down with the early Christians and even the sources that we have today. You know, some of them are written by Christians who, um, you know, maybe would present um, the information one way. And then other sources are actually written by opponents, but everybody had some angle that they were writing. You know, so I, I think that opens up the question if, yeah, let's say, you know, all the things I said are true, but if all we saw was what happened 2000 years ago, then what does that tell us about divine action? Like, shouldn't it be the case that we expect to see those same trends in the present day? And this is what's so cool about the hour in which we live is I think we're seeing a very similar event that's occurring all around the world, even now as we speak, and often with living people or people within living memory, where we can hear directly from them exactly what it was that caused them to become Christian um, and, and maybe buck even generations of, of religious tradition in their family or culture of origin and what it was that caused them to be willing to suffer and often even to die for their faith. And so we have access to people today that can tell us that. One example that, that you've all certainly heard me talk about, if you've listened to more than one episode, is looking at the events of Pentecostalism from the past century. 
But as I've studied this more, um, a fascinating new detail that I did not know previously is that events happened on Azusa Street in Los Angeles, in India, and in South Korea simultaneously, and that these, as best we know, were not connected to one another. And that just blows me away. You know, so if we look at these events as a divine act at the same time on different parts of the world that, as far as we know, did not have any kind of natural connection, the spirit acted similarly in a way that when these accounts are read next to each other, it's almost impossible to, to, to wrap your head around how these were how these were not all connected to each other. And what they experienced was a deep revival manifested by the gift of tongues as seen in scripture and often leading to deep repentance and being birthed in prayer. And, and as I'm more familiar with the Azusa Street account, you know, William Seymour, and we've talked about him. But a recent story I researched was Mukti India. It was this compound. This woman created a home for um, child brides that had escaped their, their child marriage. Um, which was a common practice at the time. And so it's these women, it was an all women's home and it eventually grew to thousands of women. And, and this woman was um, pretty famous. It's an Indian woman. She was famous internationally for all of her work in women's rights. Um, but she was also, you know, this very devoted Christian. And she had heard stories about a revival that had gone on in Wales and it had motivated her. And she sent her daughter and another person up there to learn. So they go up there, they come back, basically say it's anchored in prayer. So they start these prayer meetings twice a day and it goes on for a couple months. And then it describes how one night there was this supervisor in one of these dormitories looks over and it looks like fire had fallen on a teenager. And she thinks it's a literal fire. She runs and grabs, a, grabs this pail of water to go put the fire out when she realizes it's actually a fire of the spirit that's on her. It's not a physical fire. And all of a sudden, all these girls wake up, they start having this spontaneous prayer meeting, and it just ignites this revival. You know, you read, it's like this electric scene of these poor women confessing sin and contending in prayer. And soon people are coming from all over to experience it. They're going back out into other locations, you know, and, and it's happening simultaneously as almost an identical event is happening once again among the poor in Azusa Street in Los Angeles. And then there's another event, what people have referred to as the Korean Pentecost that's occurring in Korea at the same time. And this is the birth of Pentecostalism, you know? So it's crazy, not just that it happened, but it's crazy that it happened in different locations, but the same event, you know? Once again, that to me points to a divine act. Like, could it have been some type of unforeseen social phenomenon that allowed it to all emerge at the same time? Like, yeah, there, there could be a theory put out there, but if you take Occam's razor, what's the, the simplest explanation if you believe in divine action, the simplest explanation is, is that the Spirit of God chose to act, and he chose to act by demonstrating his presence in the same way in different locations to empower his church. Immediately after this act, there was a, a pastor in Valparaiso in Chile, um, in South America, who heard about it. They started praying, had almost the same thing happen. The Pentecostal movement in the United States took off. I've shared previously how it grew in Mexico. I was researching how Pentecostalism grew in Brazil. It was a Swedish missionary that had encountered some of this phenomenon elsewhere. I mean, it just blew up all over the world and in very fast succession. And it was mostly organic. It wasn't tied to any kind of powerful campaign to spread the message. And, and I found some similarities with the growth of the early church. There was not political power. 
nor was there any strong base of influence or wealth or anything. In all of these locations, it was predominantly phenomena that occurred among the poor. And this has actually caused Pentecostalism to be fairly marginalized. And, you know, some of it was not so much that it was weird, but it was uneducated, often poor people who are pretty far removed from power and influence reporting this kind of zealous religious phenomenon. It just, you know, people didn't take it seriously. And they just assumed this is because these are poor, uneducated people who we can't really trust. And so for a long time, Pentecostalism was kind of this black sheep. And, you know, and Pentecostals probably didn't help by responding, you know, kind of saying, well, if that's what you think of us, forget you. And, you know, kind of there became this animosity. Um, But this is even some of the stigmatization of Pentecostalism is that they didn't have power. They didn't have influence. They didn't have wealth. Yet this thing grew and spread like crazy all over the world. And once again, you have the same thing happening. It's not just one culture. And that, to me, is the most striking example of what this act of God has been, or these acts of God have been. Of It's something that's occurring among Koreans, among Chinese, all across Sub-Saharan Africa, all across Latin America, in different parts of the United States, in India. You know, what, what is it that could take off simultaneously amongst all those different cultures all at the same time? So you see a lot of similarities with Pentecostalism with the early church and its spread. You know, I think what's most striking to me is that it didn't have a strong base of power. Pentecostals have been pretty marginalized both in the church and in their various countries um, from the beginning. And so there wasn't a lot of wealth. um, There wasn't a lot of influence. And it took decades for people to even recognize Pentecostals. And there's been animosity for a variety of reasons um, that, that honestly continues to the present day. So it wasn't that Pentecostalism was tied to power that enabled it spread. Just like the early church, there's a lot of theories out there. What is it? Um, I've heard examples, you know, one prominent book talks about the recovery of primitive religion. So it's this idea that, you know, Western Christianity has grown so stale that, you know, Pentecostals tapped into this deep desire people have for this fully embodied worship where we live with this awareness of God's presence. And yeah, that, that very well could be a contributing factor for why it grew in the United States and parts of Europe. But the vast majority of Pentecostal growth is actually happening in the South and often in environments that are very spiritual to begin with. So they're not, there's not a lack of that kind of primitive spirituality, quote unquote. I don't like that term. You know, so yeah, maybe it makes sense for America, but it doesn't make sense for the majority of Pentecostalism spread. I've heard other examples of it being a kind of a mediating point of exposure um, with modernity or urbanization. I'm not even sure that the logic there holds, but let's just assume it does. Then why did it spread in China and the Chinese house church, you know, where you have this heavily persecuted group of people that they're not, you know, they're not even able to be drawn to Western things. They're cut off from the rest of the world, yet still that's growing in this kind of Pentecostal phenomenon. Um, It doesn't make sense. You know, 100 million people, um, it, it doesn't make sense in that setting. I've heard examples where people have said deprivation, um, where they've said Pentecostalism is a religion of the poor, and it's a response to the fact that they don't have their needs being met. And there's a basic refutation of this, that it's not accurate in a lot of locations where it's actually spread among middle class. But there's another argument to that of, you know, if this is an answer to deprivation and people being poor, isn't there something that they are experiencing that they see as a benefit to their poverty. So, you know, maybe that's a roundabout way of, of, of advancing why Pentecostalism is so powerful, you know, is because in Pentecostalism, the poor actually find something that helps them. 
you know, I think if we if we start with the assumption that God acts in the world, shouldn't we expect God to act among the poor? I mean, that's exactly what he said he was going to do. So when he does act among the poor, rather than viewing that as some naturalistic reason why this movement is spread, I look at that and say, what an incredible example of us witnessing the acts of God, just like he said he was going to do. All that to say, just like I was saying in the early church, I don't see any good purely secular or naturalistic explanation for why Pentecostalism has spread in the way that it did. And, you know, I'm not saying that none of those theories hold true. And I think in a local context, I could see why maybe it contributed to the appeal of it, you know, or you you just take our context. If you're in a church and and you don't feel like there's any life or energy to it and you go down the street to the Pentecostal church, like, yeah, I can totally see the very just kind of base appeal to why that would be better But to limit it just to that kind of thing, I think is a major mistake that just discounts so much else of what's going on. I think a much better answer is to see that this is an act of God. And ultimately where the rubber hits the road is when you actually talk to Pentecostals. I'm thinking of friends in India that are risking their life. I'm thinking of Chinese house church leaders. I'm thinking of, you know, time and time and time again. And so many of these are personal conversations I've had. And the great part about this is you can go read their own testimonies and read their own books and in their own words, why were they willing to break with religious tradition in their society? Why were they willing to put their life at risk? Why are they willing to be subject to marginalization? You know, what is it? And what you'll hear consistently is they encountered God in a tangible and real way. I'm personally connected to a movement in South Asia that's almost entirely among um, people who were formerly not Christian. And, you know, as we've looked at the growth of this movement, the common denominator is some kind of miracle story. And so they'll go into a village, God will heal something or someone or something will happen in that village that the people of the village will encounter God in a real way. And that's what prompts them to ultimately become Christian is because they had an encounter with God. And as I've read, you know, different stories of insider histories of Pentecostalism, that's the the theme over and over and over again. And so taking all of this, you know, I look at it and I see a very clear example of acts of God that have established this branch of the church all around the world. And I think it's an incredible sign, an incredible phenomenon for those who are living in this hour of history where we can go see it and and see this act of God. Now, going back to what I said earlier, you know, there are going to be people that will come up with other explanations for it. And there will always be some level of plausibility, but it comes back to your starting point. Do you think God acts? If so, there's a whole host of evidence just in these two movements I've talked about. And then if you were to open up the totality of church history, there's countless more examples of this that we could that we could look at as acts of God in history. I think provide plenty of examples to test this theory. Does God act in the world? And if you're committed to a belief system where God can't act, then you will invent theories and come up with explanations for why all of these things happen. But that's where we have to look at it and say, what's our starting belief system? And the good news is as a believer who believe God acts, I, I look at all these stories and it feels entirely coherent. And it's exactly what I would expect in reading the scripture, reading the testimony of believers. What we see in the world is what we were told that we would see. And I think that's a powerful testimony to us of a God who acts. Yeah, this is just purely musing because this is not my area of expertise, but I've been reading about, uh, actually, I've I've been going back through Carl Truman's Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self and really deep diving it because I've just found it so helpful over the past 18 months or so. 
And uh, I've been in the section talking about Marxist thought and and then the, the Frankfurt School in the early 20th century and Reich and Marcuse. And uh, one of the challenges that early Marxism faced was this inability to form a collective consciousness among the working class. And so they they tried various uh, strategies, but it, it wasn't until the Frankfurt School and, and Marcuse that really cracked the code on preserving kind of this this third class of uh, intellectuals that were not seen as part of the bourgeois society and they were kind of exempted from that you know on i would say baseless assumptions but that but they found they had to have this class of intellectuals that was basically feeding the working class this system of thought in order to uh, make it cohesive and that the working class was unable themselves to develop this consciousness. And so this is a totally obtuse thought. But uh, as you're talking about that, I'm just thinking, you know, among all these poorer societies throughout history, they did not need a class of intellectuals to form this cohesive kind of consciousness around an idea or around a person. To me, that that just, again, it's just one more bit of evidence that there was somebody who was forming this consciousness. It was not a class of intellectuals, but it was the Holy Spirit was drawing people together around this radically different way of seeing the world and doing life that, that again, on the surface, makes no sense why people would you know, sign up for martyrdom en masse you know, in the first several centuries and even around the world today in places like Vietnam and North Korea and China and so on. Uh, it's just amazing to see the the hand of God behind all of these workings throughout the millennia, organizing, birthing, breathing life into His church. Yeah, make that. That's a great. That's a great example, you know, of of these kind of things. Like, does it prove? I I don't know. You know, I don't know if you can say that it proves, but man, you have to look at stuff like that and say, where did this come from? How did how did this church happen? And, and we can take for granted that it did, but something happened that got us to where we are today. And when I look back, what I see is I see that God has acted. And, and you know, I think what, what is so cool to me is when I read the words of Jesus and when I look at the example of the church in Acts, and then I read the stories of these movements, I see continuity. I see similar themes. Believers gathered together in prayer, the Holy Spirit pouring out his power, it leading to repentance. You know, I, I see these ongoing themes that span time and culture, yet we see the same general acts. And these are the things that establish the church. And so why don't we wrap up there and we'll you know, continue to explore the acts of God in um, later episodes of this season. But I hope you're inspired today on following a God who is active in the world. Thanks, and we'll see you next week on Ideology.